Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we are rewinding back to May 6, 2014, episode 1341, The Basics of Fishing Gear. But before we do that, <clears throat> I actually want to kind of put in like a little mini segment here of new content for you today and today's TSP Rewind. Guys, um, you know, I, I don't like overdoing the rewind thing. I think it's good that we have shows that come out. And I mean, honestly, at this point, we've had almost 2,000 episodes So recirculating some of the older content is probably a good thing, especially for new people. And even people that have been around forever, you forget stuff. And some of these old shows are really great. But uh, I'm going to have to put out like a week of these things in about a week and a half from now when I'm doing the, the, the fall or, I'm sorry, the spring event. You can see how discombobulated I am. And I just kind of want to let you know what's going on. Like, what, what happened yesterday when we had Rewind 29? So Tracker Supply... Um, Some people say that like they're just not a good organization. I find the local store that I deal with all the time to be fantastic, but I need these 100-gallon poly stock tanks, um, and I have to have those specific ones, and they just don't have them in stock, and you can't order them to be delivered there, so is Tractor Supply. But down in Granbury, which is almost an hour drive for me, um, they said they had them online like a week ago. So I ordered them. I took a day off. I went down there to get them. They had one. I got an email over the weekend saying, your other three are here. If you don't come pick them up, your order is going to be canceled. So I called down there, and I'm not going to go through it, but the, the receiver down there is the rudest person I've ever dealt with on a professional level. Uh, enough that I'll probably write a letter to Tractor Supply Corporate about how bad she sucks. And I generally, I've probably done two of those in my life. She could be number three. Uh, I don't know if they'll care, but they should because she's obviously going to cost. I would never go back to that location again as long as she's going to be there. She was terrible. She was awful. She was horrible. I don't know what her problem is, but she needs to get over it. But I spent two hours of yesterday just going to Granbury and coming back. I also went and picked up three briskets, uh, some chicken, and some other stuff for cooking. And I spent the rest of my day cooking. Uh, I, I got the duck out that had been aged overnight in the cooler for confit. And I confit as much duck as would fit in one roaster with 15 pounds of fat. And the rest of it's going right now. So we have duck confit going right now. I brined the three biscuits, briskets and I cooked um, like 20 pounds of Italian sausage for one of the, uh, the meals. And I did some other things I can't even remember. Of course, we've got the baby ducks here on the ground, and uh, that we're taking care of them. I put out episode six of the Duck Chronicles season three today. You gotta tune in for it. It's freaking hysterical. Uh, I feed them some baby spinach, big boxes of baby spinach that we get, and baby arugula we get from the uh, from the store. Well, they figured out it's in the box, right? So when you see what they do when I put the box on the ground, it'll give you a good laugh and make your uh, make your Tuesday. Um, also, we are now on kind of the, the final strokes of, of doing the rest of the aquaponics system. My buddy David took a day off from work today, and he's out there working by himself right now. That's part of why I'm taking the day off. Not it's, it's not a day off. That's the other thing, man. When I do these things, it's not a day off. It's, part of why I'm not doing a full podcast today is I want to get out there and help him with the work that he's doing. And we've got a situation with our uh, system where we've got ick in the system, which is a, like fish herpes. Consider it that. It's just It sucks. It sucks massively. 
And uh, so we're going to have to treat that system today. I have to do a major water change today. Plus, we want to plumb the rest of the system in. We're not going to put water to it yet, but we got to get it all plumbed in. We've got to get it treated. We're putting in some isolation tanks so when things like this happen in the future, we can move some stuff. So I've got a whole bunch going with the aquaponics system today, and I've got a whole bunch going with planning out expansion of the aquatic system. So what we're really doing this year is we are ramping up the intensive production. Uh, instead of trying to utilize all three acres, we're taking about a tenth of an acre that all this stuff sits on, and we're maximizing that for food production for humans. And I think that'll be a really great teaching tool. And we'll continue to manage the rest of the property for fruit and nut production with grass-based systems for the ducks and the geese. And that's kind of the way we're going forward. We're also doing some things with the big pond. We have some crazy ideas for the big pond that might or might not get implemented this year. But lots of stuff going on. Now, the topic of today's rewind is the basis of fishing gear. I chose that one for today's Amazon item of the day. And uh, I, I think this is one you guys are really going to like, especially after you uh, kind of listen to, uh, to today's episode about all those different ways of gearing up. <clears throat> I've been promising you guys for a long time to reveal something I've been working on for a long time, which is what I'm calling my behind-the-truck seat fishing kit. And what I wanted out of that kit was I wanted a bag that would fit behind you. If you have a standard cab truck, you can lean the seat forward. It would fit back there. If you have a quad cab, obviously, you, you throw it on the seat, you know, the, the floor behind the, the, the seat of the, the main driver. You could fit it in your, you know, if you have a toolbox, it would fit in your toolbox in your truck. It would be just like a duffel bag size thing. You could reach in, you could grab it, and you could go to a place you've never fished before because you're somewhere and you look and there's a body of water or you look at the end of a park and, gee, I think there's a creek back there or whatever, and you want to go see, is it worth it? Is it worth fishing? And that you would be able to do that and not have anything else. So the telescopic rods that I, uh, I, I found and put out in the past are part of this kit, but the item of the day is the spider wire wolf tackle bag. This thing is the best-made fishing tackle bag I have ever seen. I think it's primarily set up to be something people would use in a boat with like all of their bass tackle or something like that. It comes with four really nice um, uh, small tackle trays. I kind of see those as bonuses for other uses. I only need one of them for what I'm doing. Um, but I have in this bag everything. I have a cast net. I have a minnow trap. I have three full-size fishing rods. They are telescopic and closed, but I have a medium, a light, and an ultralight action rod with reels spooled in this thing, where I can literally take this thing, walk up to the side of a body of water, open it up, grab some Berkey gulp bait, or grab the minnow trap or the cast net and get some cut bait, and just start fishing, no matter where I am, in just about any situation. I don't think you'd want to go surf fishing for black tip sharks with this gear, but it's not really for that. It's for, you know, anything, you know, eating sizes and down of your typical fish. Uh, and having that flexibility to acquire bait or use the Berkeley Gulp bait. And this bag is awesome, guys. It's got two uh, line winders on it where you actually put line on the outside of the bag and you have the spool sitting on the outside of the bag. You can attach those to your rules and directly spool line onto your reel with no twist, no kinks, no overrun, no nothing. It, it, it's, it's pretty freaking awesome. Very, very high quality built. And with all the crap, I mean, I've got an aerator in it. I've got all my tackle. I've got punch bait. I've, I've got pliers. I've got everything you could ever want. I still have space. 
I still have tons of space in this bag, tons of pockets. Um, give it a look. And if you're thinking about gearing up, you know, it's a time of year to be gearing up for your fishing. This bag would make a great bag for any type of use, either something like I've done with it, or if you wanted that kind of, you know, that bass tackle bag for your boat or something like that. I have yet to find anything as good as this. And I looked a long time, and I think it fits well with today's episode. Again, today's episode is the basics of fishing gear. It was originally episode 1341, so we're only rewinding about two years this year, back to 2014, well, three years. Holy crap, that's three years ago. Uh, I had been out to Sanibel Island, I had just gotten back, I would caught a whole bunch of different species of fish, I was really jazzed up, and uh, guess what guys, here's another little, little announcement. I'm going to be buying a boat probably right around the 1st of, uh, of April. Uh, I, I, I'm ready to do it now, but the workshop's coming up. It's just going to be one more thing to deal with. So I'm going to be getting a boat this year. We're going to be getting tons of content, uh, using that boat, uh, for fishing stuff for the YouTube channel and things like that. And uh, it'll vastly increase what we're able to do. I haven't owned a boat since right before I started the survival, well, right when I started the survival podcast, I had a little boat and I still was fishing with it here and there. But when we moved to Arkansas, I got rid of it. I was going to get a new boat up there. Decided not to for a variety of reasons. It's probably a good thing I didn't, considering we uh, ended up coming back here to Texas. But it's time to be waterborne once again, and uh, lots of stuff coming with that. So hope you enjoy it. Again, we're rewinding to uh, 2014, episode 1341, The Basics of Fishing Gear. Before I get into this, I want to explain something. This is going to be a series. I'll talk more about that in a second. But today is just the basics of gear, rods, reels, hooks, weights, floats, that stuff. Okay? Um, and I know that some of you guys are experienced fishermen and you're going to go, I can't believe he didn't include this hook or this weight or this type of line or this type of rig or this type of knot. Um, there's no way, there's no way I have right now, like a five or six part series planned, uh, depending on whether I get more feedback and I couldn't cover every hook pattern that exists and use of them probably in one episode in detail. So I'm going to cover the stuff that I use all the time, the stuff that I think is the most common stuff, and the stuff that I think is the most beneficial to people that are just trying to figure things out. And hopefully along the way through this series, even you guys that are really experienced will pick up some tips and, tips and tricks and stuff like that. I don't know how much the very experienced angler is going to enjoy today's show. And for that, for those of you that are deeply, deeply experienced and know everything and more than I do about fishing, uh, and everything more than I do and every other person on the world that put together, you can find you are the angling expert. I apologize, but I've got to start with the basics, just like I do with preparedness in general. So I'm going to start very basic today. Again, I'm going to talk about... Rods and reels, the types of fishing line, mono and braided, fluorocarbon, hooks, patterns of hooks, weights, nets, gaffs, bait containers, floats, clippers and pliers, and all the stuff that you need to have, or at least have knowledge of, to choose the right stuff to go out and basically catch fish. I'm not going to talk a lot about artificial lures today. I have, in the series, here's what I have planned. I have fishing rivers and streams, fishing the surf in bays and piers, and all about boats and hiring guides. And in those three, that's two, three, and four in the series, I'm going to discuss artificials as they apply to different fishing situations and different types of fish. I'm not a huge artificial fisherman, though. I'm not big on 
flies and, and artificial worms and stuff like that. I use them in situations where I think they are the best tool for the job. And I like that you can have a box with some gear and some lures and jigs and stuff in it with a, with a rod and put it in the back seat of your, your, your vehicle. And if you get out somewhere and you happen to see a place to fish, you've got artificials and you can fish if you can't find any live bait. I like that. Um, there's a lot to be said for them, but the reality is fish don't eat rubber. Fish don't eat metal. I guess tiger sharks occasionally eat a, you know, an old can or something like that. But in, you know, fish eat other fish. Most, mostly that's what they eat. And, and insects and soft body invertebrates and things like that. So I'm big on bait fishing. And, and I think it's the easy place for people to start and it gives them confidence. So specifically today, from a gear perspective, I'm going to talk mostly from the standpoint of using either live or cut or prepared baits. Uh, and I realize I don't even have a section in my outline for baits. So maybe one show we could add to the series if people really like it as a whole show just on different baits. But I think that'll get blended into the rivers and streams, the, 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 the surf and bays and lakes uh, and things like that. So anyway... I want to tell you kind of, guys, what got me jazzed up for this. One was just spending about 10 days fishing, and I really spent about five fishing in earnest. Um, the first five days we were there, the water was just turquoise blue. Uh, it was gentle, soft, rolling tides, and it was clear, and it was great for fishing from the beach. And then the last five days, it was like turbid chocolate milk, and we did some more fishing and caught a few things, but really didn't focus much on it because it wasn't really very good conditions. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun to fish the surf. Let me tell you what I caught, not how many, but what different species I caught from the beach, just standing you know, in, in the water up to my waist fishing the surf. I caught Spanish mackerel, uh, pompano, snook, Ladyfish, whiting, which are actually called Gulf Kingfish, but I don't like to use that term because people think of king mackerel. Uh, and a whiting slash Gulf Kingfish is not a very exciting fish. Uh, gaff top sail catfish, hardhead catfish, jack crevel, blue runners, and speckled sea trout. That's just the, the species list uh, that I caught while I was on the beach. And that's part of why I love fishing the surf. The closest surf to me is about five and a half hours away. I'm interested to hear from you guys. Would anybody be interested in a surf fishing trip? Uh, down to like Bryan Beach or Freeport Beach or something like that, Texas. It's south of Galveston, southwest of Galveston area. It's about five and a half ish hours, six ish hours uh, away from uh, from the Dallas Fort Worth area. If you live south of there, it's closer. Um, I can't tell you we're going to get the kind of variety you do in Florida, but usually it's a lot of fun, especially if you pick the right time to go, the right tides, and the right weather conditions. Which, when we do the surf fishing show, we'll talk more about that. But what made me realize that maybe it was a good idea to do a show like this was, as I was on the beach, it's a very popular place to fish, and I met a lot of people. And I met some really specialized switched-on guys, like there were a couple guys that were out there with fly rods, and they were casting their fly rods to snook in the surf in the low guts, and the gut is the space between sandbars, the, the gullies, that, you know, when you step into the ocean, there's a drop-off, and it comes back up, they call that a gut. Um, and some other guys, and some cool guys that were, in, you know, one guy was from uh, Virginia Beach, and we probably spent two or three hours just hanging out and fishing together, just kind of randomly met each other on the beach, and these guys knew what they were doing. And then there were people that you could tell them they knew what they were doing, they were rigged up okay, and then you see people, like a guy I saw with his kid, and he's got this giant weight and this bobber the size of a freaking softball, 
and you see people with you know fishing rods that could land you know something like a like a like a freaking marlin or something like a, a rod that's really designed for fish that are you know 200 pounds what are you doing um and you start to realize there's a lot of, and I started thinking about that it wasn't that much of it going on in Sanibel but I've been all kinds of places especially when you go to state parks and stuff like that and you see people with their kids fishing and the kid wants to go so dad doesn't really know what he's doing so he just buys a bunch of crap at the store and and you just look at very inappropriate tackle for the job at hand. Uh and oversizing things is the number one thing that I see is oversizing. So too big a rod, too heavy a line, too big a hook, too big a weight if you're using a float or a bobber, too big of a bobber, uh everything's just too big. And as we talk more today, you'll understand why that's that's an issue. Or you see people with gear they're not comfortable with, uh they don't really understand it, so they're there with a with a bait casting reel that if you don't handle it exactly right you end up with backlashes and tangles and they end up with backlashes and tangles. And I think it's because a lot of times people just don't know. So they just go to the store and they buy whatever looks right. And in America we have a bigger, stronger, faster is better mentality and I think it leads to a lot of mistakes. So the hope for today's show is just to get you guys in to an understanding of the basics of the gear and why you would select different gear and what's available and how you make a decision based on what you're going to be doing. And I want to start out with the most basic thing um that that people generally start off with and it's kind of where if you start off wrong everything gets worse from there. So that's the rod and the reel, the rod and reel combination I've put together. Um basically you have four main options. The old hook fin cane pole and there's actually some pretty specialized cane poles and that's just a big long stick with a string on it and I'm not going to get into it today but there's actually some really good applications for cane pole fishing especially when you get into like crappie and things like that. There's certain places with just that long flip and simplicity actually has a lot of advantages so don't write off cane pole. You've got bait casting and spinning and then you've got something called closed face spinning. Well, let's start out with bait cast. Bait cast is the more complex reel as far as learning the technique to be able to cast with it well and keep it from getting tangled and backlashed. A bait casting rod when you're holding it, it sits up. Okay? So you're holding you're holding it with your right hand, you're holding it to cast. The reel sits up to the top side. So you're when you look down at your hand, you're looking at the top of the reel. And it's got a release and it's got a spool. And the line goes on that spool. And it's what's called a level wind spool, meaning as you reel the line in, there's a little guide that goes back and forth and line and 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 sets all of your line to a level. And when you cast it, as you as soon as you press the release, your thumb needs to go to the reel. You see a lot of bass fishermen using small bait casting reels. When I say small, I mean they're not the giant ones that guys use on, you know, boats for marlins. But the hand goes from the release, which is either going to be a, a little button or a lever in front, and then the thumb goes to the spool, and it keeps because if you just click it, it will start to unspool. The line will just start to run off, and it will it will run to the point where it will start to overrun, and it will turn into a great big bird's nest. This is part of what makes it a little more complex. So when you cast with an overhand cast as you throw the line out you let your thumb up on the on the uh, spool and you feel it and as it gets to the point where it's going to stop running out you bring your thumb back down onto it if you don't 
Then you get a huge bird's nest because that line spooling is free spools. All right? And when you're fighting a fish with that, if you're right-handed, generally you've got your rod in your right hand and you're reeling with your left hand up top. Some people like to use a bait casting rod. They switch hands and they reel with their right hand. Most of them are reversible. There's really not a wrong way to do it. I prefer the crank on the left side because as a right-handed fisherman, I feel that controlling the rod is more important than controlling my crank speed when I'm fighting a fish because the rod does the work. But that's the basics of a, a bait casting reel. Why would anybody want something this complex? With certain rods, heavier action rods, with a stiff back where you need to set hooks into the larger fish, it's got more spine, more backbone. Uh, generally, they work well with heavier lines than a lot of spin casting reels do without upsizing the overall size a lot. Um, there's a lot of different techniques that we'll get into in other shows, like flipping for bass, where you're taking and you're just kind of using it and, and taking the, the line and pitching a lure in. You're not really casting it, or you're casting it a little bit. There's certain things that make that reel more advantageous. Um, certain types of fishing, like trolling, Uh, it's very easy to push the release, hold it with your thumb, and count, and get a certain distance of line out based on a count. When you're fishing for fish, you're jigging vertically, which means you're sitting in a boat, let's say, and you're fishing straight underneath you. As you're lowering a lure down, sometimes on the way down, a fish will hit. And locking with your thumb and setting the hook during that kind of a hit is easier to do. There's just a lot of situations where a bait casting rod In a smaller fish size situation, you know, stuff that's up to 20 pounds and down just makes a lot of sense. But it is more complex than a spinning or a closed face reel. The drags are generally a little bit more precision. And as you get into larger fish, big fish, you know, where you're talking fish that are 100 pounds and more, it's almost exclusively that you see people fishing with bait casting reels. When they're trolling in the ocean and things like that, there's bigger reels that actually have gearing ratios in them. So just like a bike, when you're having a hard time Getting up a hill, you can shift into a different gear, and it makes it easier to, to pedal. There's large reels for like fishing for like tuna and shark and marlin that you can change the gear ratio and get more mechanical advantage. Where with these larger fish, a lot of times, even though you're playing with them the rod, you're actually bringing them in more with the reel, uh, especially with heavier tackle that can handle the stress, and you're not as worried about a break off or something like that. So. That's the bait casting reel from the bottom to the top. The big thing is that reel is fished with the reel up, up top. All right. Um, then there's like the standard, I guess the, the most popular fishing reel out there. It's what's called a open face spin casting reel. This is a reel that when you look at it, there's a little thing called a bail. It's a wire piece that goes around. You can see the spool, and when you open the bail, the line comes out. So this is fished with the reel down. So if you're holding the rod, your right hand you're going to cast, the reel is underneath. And right where the reel meets the rod, where it bolts together, you pull the line in with your index finger and hold it against the rod. You open your bale, you cast, and as you cast, you release. Unless it's rigged up wrong or messed up or using bad line or something, unlike a bait casting rod, you can let that line fly out until it hits the water and then you just turn the reel once, and it flips over and it closes. It's not going to spool out. It's not going to run out. It's not going to bird's nest on you. It's not going to tangle up unless you get something screwed up. Okay. The advantages of a spin casting reel is, one, it's easier. 
Two, I have found in my personal experience, if everything else is equal, the rod action, uh, the, uh, the, the weight of the line, the weight of the lure, the length of the rod, um, I can cast further with a spin casting reel. Um, I can cast more precise with a spin casting reel. I can't do some of the casts as well, like an underhanded flip cast is much more difficult with a spin casting reel. You're much more likely, if you're trying to flip, which is a technique we'll talk about in a future show, to get the line hung on the crank. So there's, it's not that one's better or one's worse, it's just what are you more comfortable with. With a spin casting reel, the drag is either on the backside or up on the spool. Now drag is, and this is very important, and I find this is another huge mistake people make that have never fished a lot. Drag is the tension required that when you pull the line, the reel will, will spin. So even if it's closed up, the fish will be able to take a line. So you see a guy on TV and he hooks a fish and he goes, that thing, that's the drag. You want your drag set to where a good steady pull will cause that reel to release some of that drag. Um, it's much easier to set a hook with a drag that's a little bit loose, but you still get a good hook set and tighten that drag up than to deal with the fact that the drag is too tight and you've got a big fish on. Because if that fish can't take line, a lot of times that's when you get a break off. So that drag is either going to be up on the top of the spool, which is where most of them are, and some of them have a little thing on the back. This is a situation where if you're fishing for larger fish, adjusting your drag during when you're fighting a fish a little tighter, a little looser, is easier with a bait casting reel because it's up and it's usually right where you can reach it with your thumb. Where with a spinning reel, you're holding the rod with one hand, reaching around with the other and loosening or tightening that drag. That's another difference. But I still generally prefer spinning reels. I think it's easier to teach a person to fish with a spinning reel. Um, and they're widely available. And again, that reel goes down. You're holding the rod, the reel's down. One of the big things I see, you see people with a spinning reel, open face spinning reel, with the reel pointing up. And the reason they're doing this is they want to crank with their right hand. Okay, Again, I think you're better off, in general, fighting that fish with the right hand, the dominant hand, let me put it that way, on the rod. The rod is what guides, it's what feels. So reeling doesn't take a lot of coordination, playing the fish with the rod does. But if you really want to crank with your right hand, most of these are also reversible. Take the crank off the left, put it on the right side, so that then you can cast and you can crank with your right hand. It's up to you. But that's the spinning reel in general. And a, spin, a rod for a spinning reel will be a straight, when you look at the handle, it's straight. There won't be a little dovetail thing on it. Your bait casting rods generally have a little dovetail where when you're holding that rod, your index finger is on the bottom of the rod and hooked up into a little dovetail. And a spinning rod will have just a straight. Okay, so that brings us to something that's kind of half of half. Closed face spinning reels. Closed face spinning reels are push buttons. Right? So when you look at the reel, you can't see the line. There's a cover over it, and there's a little hole the line comes out of. Okay? But they, you, you fish with them up, so you look down, the reel's facing you, like you do a bait casting reel. But they function more like a spin casting reel. And they go on a bait casting rod, the one with the dovetail, where the index finger goes below the rod as you're holding the reel facing up. These are simple. That's the only big advantage, in my opinion, of a, of a push-button reel or a closed-faced reel. 
I mean, it's it's to the symbol to the point you hold the button, and when you push the button in, the the line doesn't go out as long as you hold on the button. When you let go, the line goes out. So you push that button, you come back, you throw your cast, you let go of the button as you cast, line goes out. Because it's a closed face, it tends to be less likely, tends to be less likely to get tangles over a bait caster or an open face spinning reel. Okay, it fishes a lot like a bait casting reel. Reels up, cranking the left hand, got that heavier bait casting rod. Some of them are really, really good reels. I don't think any of them are as good as either a bait caster or an open face, but they're pretty good. Some of them are dirt cheap. They're the ones that parents usually get for kids because it's easy for the kid to push the button, throw, let go of the button, and then crank it one time and the, 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 the reel locks. I have never seen a closed-faced reel that I would be comfortable going after really large fish with. When you take the face off of the reel, you look inside, there's a flat disc, and between that disc and the next piece down on the reel is where the line goes. And there's a little rod that comes out. And that rod, when you spin the reel around, is what grabs the line in. And the line goes against that rod, and that's what reels the line in. When you push that button... As you let go, that little rod retracts, and that's how the line free spools out. While there's less tangles generally overall with a closed-faced reel, when it happens, it is usually a much bigger mess. It's much more often the case, to, to me, with a closed-faced reel that when you get a really bad tangle in the reel itself, that you end up having to strip all the line off and start over. This is another advantage to me of a spin, an open-faced reel. An open-faced reel has a spool that the line goes on. There'll be either a push button that releases that spool, or in most good rods, there's the drag thing. So it's a little thing. You unscrew it to get the drag release. You keep going. Eventually it comes off. You pull the spool off. This means you can get extra spools for one reel. And let's say you wanted to be able to fish with pretty light line, a little bit heavier line. You wanted to be able to fish with, let's say, six-pound line for really smaller fish that are a little bit more line sensitive, and you wanted, if you got somewhere in a little bit bigger fish, to be able to go up to like 12-pound line. Well, you could have two spools in your tackle box of these different lines, and you could have maybe another one that's you know your general purpose, and that way if something goes wrong with one, even if it's not ideal, you can just, instead of re-spinning the whole reel with line, pick it up and put it on. It's another little tip for you. With a lot of reels... If you're fishing with 8, 10, 12 pound line, something like that, you'll find that you can put like 400 yards of line on the reel. There's no need for that. So in general, what I do is I take cheap monofilament line, which we'll get the lines in a second, and I'll put about 100 yards of line on it, and then I'll splice my main line that I'm actually using for fishing, because getting down to that backing is highly unlikely. Now, if I'm fishing for really big fish that might do blinding long runs and things like that, or something specialized, I would spool the whole reel with whatever my line of choice is. But especially, like, there's these old um, Mitchell 300 made by Garcia Mitchell in France back in the 60s. I have about a, a dozen of them I picked up off of eBay and rebuilt. Um, they're an incredible reel. This is something back in the 50s and 60s that, like, you saved up to buy a Mitchell someday. Today, they're considered pretty low end, and like, in general, you can find them in, in, uh, you know, for 10, 12 bucks that need a little bit of work and love to rehabilitate, and no one really puts a premium on them. But the spools on those things are deep. I mean, 400, 500 yards of line might fit on there. 
putting expensive line on at that level doesn't make sense. I've also taken some deep spools before, and I've put you know 100 yards of line on them, and actually then just taped that line, clean taped it um, with like a first aid tape, and then put my line on from there. Just because I only need 150 yards is plenty. I mean, I don't know how many people can cast 150 yards. Now, again, it's situational. You get into playing around, like there's times where we really like tackling, we'll fish for like 30-pound carp. Right? Those fish can, you gotta let them run. You gotta keep that drag loose. You gotta let them run. You gotta play them out. And in that case, you need a lot of line. But in most situations, you know, 150 yards of line is a lot of line. Now, why is it important then to have the backing? Why not just put 150 yards of line on your reel? If your reel is underspooled, okay? If your reel's underspooled, it won't cast well. So if you look at your spool and there's like a three quarters of an inch between where your your line stops and the edge of your spool, when you go to cast, there's a lot of resistance as that line comes across that spool, and it won't cast as well. If you over spool, meaning that you're all the way out to like you're at the very edge of what the spool can hold, you get a lot of roll offs and you get a lot of backlashes and and and, and tangles. So. You, you, this is something you probably can look up if you've never seen a properly spooled spool, but you want your spool to where it's about an eighth of an inch between where your, your, your wound line stops and the lip of your spool ends. With a bait casting rod, it's a little bit different, but you can kind of look at it. You've got a nice level uh, up to, there's little edges on the thing, and then the close face spinning reel, a little more difficult to see because it's all hidden inside. Another reason I'm not particularly fond of them. But I would say for people that are frustrated with bait casting and they're not good with a bait casting reel, and you want that stiffer rod, that, that ability to flip and things like that, a good close face reel has a place. There's also fly rods and fly reels, which are beyond the scope of today's discussion. Um, fly fishing is very, very specialized. But a fly reel is the big round reel, usually, usually at the end of the rod. And you see the guys going back and forth with the rod. They actually use the weight of the line to cast, not the weight of the weight or the lure or the bait to cast. So those are the basics of your rods. Um, my advice is start with an open face spinning reel. I think it's the most flexible, the most versatile. It allows you, like I said, to roll up extra spools. You'll probably initially have some issues where your line is just, ah, I can't take it anymore. And a lot of times line will get jacked up and you just don't want to replace it. So you keep using it when you know you should. And then you get a nice fish and you lose it because of that. If you have an extra spool of line, it's much less work to just simply take that spool off, drop that new spool on and re-rig than it is to get out the reel and, and, and wind your line on. Winding line. There's a lot of opinions on this, and basically people say if the reel spins to the left, you lay the spool on the ground, and it should spin to the right. So they should go opposite directions to avoid twisting. I found that no matter what I do, if I use a spinning reel and I come off of a spool of line with the line laying down on the ground, I end up with twisting. So the easiest way is if you have a partner, you get something like a pencil, put it through the spool, and and over the top, just like toilet paper is supposed to go on the, on the roll. And yes, it's supposed to go over the top. <laughs> anyway, and have somebody put some tension on it with their fingers so that that spool doesn't overrun. If you're in a pinch and you got to do it yourself and you've got monkey toes like I do, you put the pencil through the spool 
and you hold it between your big toe and your second toe on both sides and you use your toes and then you put the rod together and you can wind it on that way is another way that it can be done. A lot of bait shops, tackle shops will wind line for you. You bring your reel in, they'll wind your spool for you. Uh, most of them use Stren, which is a pretty good monofilament of whatever weight you want. It's not as good as it gets, but it's damn good. And if you want to make sure your line is wound right, they have machines that do this for you. Uh, it might be worth doing. A lot of people will do it for a buck plus the cost of the line. All right? So just a little bit on spooling right there. Uh, let's talk about line. There's, there's more than three types of line. Okay, so nobody gets upset with me, and there's, you know, there's lead core, and there's, you know, fly lines for wet flies and for dry flies. Yeah, I understand. But there's three main types of line for general fishing. Monofilament, braided line, and fluorocarbon. Monofilament is the most popular line out there. Um, if you're going to go with monofilament, I have a real good spot in my heart for good quality strand monofilament line. Strand's probably about the best fairly priced monofilament out there. Um, a lot gets made of color. There's a line brand called Cajun that's red that is supposedly invisible to fish once it's you know more than two feet in the water. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. I do use it a lot because it's affordable. Uh, it works well. It doesn't twist or kink up on you. And it, again, it's affordable. It's much cheaper uh, in large spool quantities than Strand or Berkeley or other high-end lines. And I use generally snelled hooks or leaders, so I'm less worried about the color of the line on the rod. We'll get to that in a later episode. But I don't like yellows and greens. I like clear. I like blue. And I'm kind of sold on red being invisible to fish under two, after two feet of water. I really am. I'm not sure why it would be. Um, I've gone down underwater and looked at it, you know, wearing goggles, and it's not invisible to me, but I've had enough success using it, uh, even without, um, even without uh, a leader, that I'm, I'm pretty sold on it. But your best bet is probably good quality, clear, strand line for affordability, flexibility, durability, and reliability. And there's, you know, super lines like spider wire and things like that. They do work, and they are stronger. Um, the spider wire is dramatic how strong that is for a comparable weighted piece of line. Uh, I've been snagged up where you have to break off. You want to break off. You're snagged up on the ground, out in the water. You can't wait out there and get it off. Uh, you don't want to cut it with a you know because you're going to have a uh, hundred foot of line lost and out there in the water where it's bad. So you want it to break off. You want it to break off down where it is. How do you do it? Well, what you don't do, you don't pull your rod real hard so that it's bending. You either tighten up your drag or hold your drag manually. You reel your rod in and you start. You hold it and you pull straight back so there's no stress on the rod. So the, the stress is all on the reel and the line. And you start pulling and walking backwards. You keep it low in case the snag comes loose. So that if it comes loose, it just and stays in the water. If you're pulling it high and you're not far out as you think you are, you get hit in the face or hit somebody else in the face with a weight or a hook and might end up with a hook in the nose or the lip or the head or the throat or something like that. So you keep it low and do that and eventually it'll break off. The first time I used spider wire, this is not a braid, this is just a, a brand, um, I was kind of blown away at how ever-loving tough it was. 
Now, there's a lot of varieties of this spider wire. I'm talking about the monofilament version of spider wire. Um, there's the other two kinds of line we're about to talk about. They make that in spider wire as well. So I'm just talking about straight up mono. Um, it's just expensive uh, compared to other monos, but there's a reason. It's very, very strong. If you want monofilament and you want the ultimate durability in all the things that I've fished, Spider wire gets the nod. The reason that monofilament is so popular, one mono, so singular. So it's a single strand of line. It's all one piece. Nothing's connected together. So that gives it inherent durability and strength. It is a little, it gives a little. Okay. Uh, in other words, there's a little stretch in it. And stretch in line is not a bad thing. It allows some elasticity. And that means a hook set, while it's strong enough to pull that hook into the fish's mouth, it's not as likely to cause a break-off, and you get a little bit more. If you think about the flexibility of the rod tip itself, it's that flexibility and elasticity that creates that, that really good hook set. So it also has a good feel to it. You can really feel what's going on with monofilament through your fingers or through the rod. It has just a great feel of the fish. So that's really a lot, and it's, it's very carefree. It's the least likely to tangle, to twist, to knot up, if it's quality. There's cheap-ass mono, and it's not the same thing. Uh, but a good quality mono is just easy maintenance. The next is braided. Braided is generally for people fishing for really large fish or saltwater fishermen. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's braided line, and it's braided from multiple different uh, types of things. But generally, it doesn't stretch much. It's it's pretty tight line. It has a little bit more likelihood to end up tangled or twisted, but if it's good line, it, it, it's not likely to. But it's, it's a braid, and it's more like a material, not like uh, the, the easy, it, more like a string is a way to think of it. So if you think about that, even if it's a small line, you have it on a hook, it's a little bit more apparent to the fish that something's there. Some fish are what you call line shy. you got to use the lightest line you can for the situation, And that braid scares them off a bit. So a lot of people that use braided line then use some type of a leader, either a monofilament leader, which is the line we just talked about, or a fluorocarbon leader, which is the next line that we're going to talk about. But the big thing with these braided lines is you can get lines, for instance, that have about 20-pound tensile strength but are about as big around in diameter as a 6- to 8-pound monofilament. Why would you want to do such a thing? One, bigger fish, longer runs, you know, more likely to spool down a reel on you. You can fit more line on the reel. A reel that'll hold, I don't know, let's say 200 yards of six-pound line uh, will probably hold uh, only about 105-ish yards of like 10 or 12, right? So the thicker the line, the less fits on the spool. It adds up quicker than you might think. So that helps. The other thing is if you're running lures or trolling where you're in a boat and you're moving slowly through the water, a thicker line will ride the lure higher. Generally, what you're always struggling to do is get the lure down to depth. So a, a smaller diameter that's just as strong as a larger diameter, it is, everything being equal, the, the, the trolling lure or even a crank lure will go deeper, which can be important as well. So there's just a lot of advantage to having a smaller diameter line. 
And again, once you add a liter, which is just simply a piece of monofilament or fluorocarbon, at the end of it, as far as the fish is concerned, that's what it is. Now, it's only as strong as its weakest link. So if you have a 30-pound braided line and a 10-pound fluorocarbon liter, you're down to 10 pounds. Fluorocarbon. Fluorocarbon is like finicky monofilament that's better. It doesn't have as much stretch, so it doesn't have quite the feel, um, and it's a little bit, a little bit more care necessary when you're fishing to keep it from tangling and twisting and things like that. But it's practically invisible underwater. It's actually the same density as water, so it's pretty much invisible to the fish. Um, it does not break down for anything. Like if you get, if you're, you know, you're out your fishing, you spray DEET, you know, insect repellent on you. You get a little bit of that on your monofilament line. Over time, it will start to wear that line down. It won't, fluorocarbon won't. Um, salt won't wear it down. So the line lasts longer. And it's very, very clear. And it sees a little bit more care. And it costs more money. So those are your three lines. I say monofilament for most applications. And as you get better and you're doing something specialized, you can adapt these other lines. But that way, now when you go into a, a, a bait store, a tackle shop or whatever, and you go, I need some fishing line, and you're standing there, you got Easy Braid, Spider Wire Mono, Flora Braid. Well, uh, what is it? Flora Braid, right? It's a hybrid. It's a fluorocarbon braid, right? Do you want that? Probably not. If you don't know what it is, you probably don't want it. Quality monofilament. Again, The, 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 the economy quality monofilament to me is good old fashioned strand line. It's really a, a good line. The big giant reels of like, you know, grandpa bucks, uh, I can't think of the one that they always sell at like Walmart and Kmart and stuff like that. There's some brand, uh, that, you know, they have big spools. Don't buy that crap. Spend the, the, the line is the only thing that connects you to the fish. So it's really, really important. Next up today, let's talk about hooks. Hooks are where I see people get kind of crazy with some things. I want to start out with the basic hooks. My number one favorite hook is a bait holder. It's what you call a short shank. So when you got a hook, you got the hook part, you got the barb, and you got the shank. The shank is the part that's straight up the back that goes to the eye where you tie the line on. It's, so it's a shorter shank than some of the other hooks we'll talk about. So it's not a real long shank. And it's got two little barbs on the shank. So when you put a bait on, it helps retain the bait, hence bait holder. The eye is bent a little bit inward. So when you set the hook, it has a natural disposition to make the hook rotate in. Um, and hooks are where people generally either go too small or too big, and generally too big. It's, it's difficult sometimes to know what size hook to use. You get in a situation where you're setting hooks with eights, and the bigger the number, the smaller the hook. An 18 hook would be tiny, teeny, tiny, special order probably. Little gold hooks that are used for specialized application, like minnow hooks almost. Um, and then like a, a four-aught would be a great big hook. Right? So when you look at a bait holder... My go-to starting hook is generally a number two. And if I can go down to a number six, I love going down to a number six. And you can just look at these sizes online to get a feel for it. 
But two seems to be a good, unless you're fishing for sunfish or something, or little bitty fish, and you know they're small. Two will generally catch the smaller fish that will steal the bait, but it's big enough to have a holding capacity to handle larger fish. As you, If you know you're in a larger fish, you go to a bigger hook. A bigger hook has more holding capacity. And a bigger hook is more likely to hook the fish in the mouth than be swallowed down to the guts. So in that case, it's more likely you'll be able to release the fish. Okay. Bait holders are not considered the best fish hook for those that are practicing catch and release, but I've caught plenty of fish on bait holder hooks, and I've ever had a real problem releasing them. Again, they're my favorite hook. Next, I'm going to talk about long shank hooks. Long shank hooks are your standard everyday fish hooks. They have a longer shank and a J hook and a straight eye, and no barbs on them. There's some real advantages. One, you can get a small hook. Now, when I say small, I'm talking about the gap between the point of the hook and the shank. So if you make your, your finger into a J, the size of the hook really isn't about how long the shank is or how big the total hook is. What is the size of the gap between the point of the hook and the back of the hook? That gap is what gets into the fish's mouth. So let's say you're catching little fish like bluegills and brims, and you want to go to like a number 10 hook. A number 10 bait holder is pretty small, and a big brim, you know, uh, when I say brim, I mean like a sunfish, a sunny, a brim, a perch, whatever you call it based on where you're at, um, can suck one of those right down in the guts. And even if you're keeping them for the freezer, it might be hard to get that line out. Then you're tying hooks on, you got blood all over the place, you want to keep the fish fresh. The best way to keep a fish fresh is alive or straight on the ice, one or the other. Um, so it's just better that they not swallow the hook completely. Use a longer shanked hook and that small gap, you get the advantage of a little hook, harder for a smallmouth fish to seal the bait, but the, the shank of the hook is easier to get a hold of so you can unhook the fish. All right? There's really two types of long shanks. There's an Aberdeen and a swash. Uh, a swash is your standard fish hook, the one you would probably find in most kits that you would buy somewhere. They're a little bit thicker, heavy-gauged wire that the hooks are made out of. Your standard hooks, they work really good for trot lines and jug fishing and just general fishing. And Aberdeen is a very thin hook. These are specialized. These are for your small fish, your panfish and things like that. Because uh, they're very lightweight and you can't have a big fish on there. It'll straighten the hook out. So another reason you have to go up in size and hooks at times, you can get a hook that'll hook a fish well. But if it's a big enough fish and a small enough hook, I've seen hooks actually straighten out. There's a, there's a video series I did called Survival Fishing with Flowers. Toward the end of it, I catch a snapping turtle, uh, about probably about a 220-pound turtle. As I'm trying to land him without hurting him, and there's a mud bank and all, basically I think he cuts the line. And I come back later and I show you that he didn't cut the line. Actually, what he did was straighten the hook out. When the hook straightened out, it pulled out of his mouth. Um, so that's another reason you have to think about the size of your hooks. Don't worry about that, though. Right? Unless you're getting into really big fish, it ain't going to happen. All right. So your day-to-day -day stuff, you're going to a creek, you're going to a river, you're going to a lake, you're probably not going to have a lot of hook straightening out if you have a hook that's the right size for the job in the first place. Um, the next type of hook I want to talk about is called a circle hook. Circle hook is the gold standard for catch and release. It looks like what it sounds like. It's a circle. With all of the hooks I've been talking about so far, You can leave a line out with some tension or what have you, and the fish might hook itself or whatever, but the circle hook is a hook that's designed so that, let me go back to the other hooks. Fish takes the bait, you feel it, and you set the hook. So a quick snap of the wrist, 
maybe a twist of the body depending on how big the hit, what type of situation you're in, but there's a jerk, a snap that jerks the hook into the fish's mouth and sets the hook. Whereas my buddy Hal would say crosses his eyes for him. Um, with a circle hook, you have a fish take it, all you do is start reeling. And as the tension happens, but the circle goes in and it just, it just automatically sets itself. They were developed by Japanese tuna fishermen. So, People think you're being more sporting with a circle hook. A circle hook is very, very uh, reliable for hook sets. The issue, though, is because of that circle, you almost always hook the fish in the lips or the corner of their mouth, so it's almost always possible to release the fish pretty much unharmed, other than he's got a hole in his lip. Um, but those who have fished a lot know when you hook a fish in the lips, you don't get blood and a lot of damage. And I've caught fish with six, seven holes in their lips that have clearly been veterans of catch and release. Um, so that's the advantage of a circle hook is reliability of hook set um, along with ability to catch and release. That said, fish that have papery mouths like stripers, so they have a great big bone structure, but between... The bone structure and like the meat of the face, it's really, really thin. It's surprising how thin it is. That hook will reliably set, but that, that really thin membrane will start to get wider and wider as you're fighting the fish in. And a lot of times the hook, if the fish runs at you and gets slack in the line and you don't keep the tension on, that hook will just kind of fall out and you, you lose fish uh, sometimes with a circle hook. It's not because of the force hook set, though. It's generally because of certain fish with certain structures to their mouths are more likely for that hole to get bigger than the barb and the hook to be able to be expelled. But they are very reliable. They're also a very easy hook to end up stuck in your hand and your fingers. So you really have to be careful with all fish hooks, but especially a circle hook, because they're pretty much designed wherever the point meets resistance If there's tension on the other end, the hook just starts to crawl in. Think of it that way. So it can be bad. Uh, a Kind of a hybrid between the two is what's called a kale. A kale looks like a half circle kind of. It comes down in a straight line, angles, and back in. These are my grandfather's favorite hooks. Um, I like kale hooks. A lot of people think that they're very likely to kill fish and damage fish. It's because they work good. Um Generally, the fish get them a little bit deeper in their mouths, and you get a lot more hook into bone. I actually had one time uh, these old mustad kale hooks. They don't make this pattern anymore that my grandfather had. He's, uh, they were great. And I was fishing with live bait using little sunfish, hooked through the lips for smallmouth bass. I caught a smallmouth bass about 18 inches long, and the, even though I could see the hook, it was up into this fish's bony structure of the top of his mouth. And I had needle nose pliers and I'm pulling and pulling and I realized that's not coming out. It's in bone. And the only hope this fish has is to cut the line and let it go. So I cut the line and let it go. And the fish was laying up under this stump. About two weeks later, I'm fishing in the same area and this little sunfish are everywhere. And I always knew when there were bass in the area because the sunfish would just disappear. The sunfish disappear And I cast the line straight where that stump was, right where I caught the fish two weeks ago. Line goes out, boom, set the hook, reel it in. And I'm looking at this bass, and I'm going, no, come on. That's the same bass. I get the fish, and I pick it up by its lip, and I look at its mouth. It's got one hook on one side, and the old hook is on the other side of its mouth. So it was actually the same fish. And that kale hook was still up into it. So I 
took the hook on the line out, and I got my needle nose. And this at this point, I was able to remove the hook that was there from two weeks ago and release the fish to, to live on to another day. So kale hooks are not necessarily anything that's going to be any more lethal to a fish than any other hook, despite the reputation. Um, anytime a fish takes the hook down into its stomach or down below its gills and it's bleeding, it's highly likely to die. And this is where I think that fishing regulations should have a little bit of common sense. Well, you can't keep a fish under or over or, you know, slot them. I'm all for conservation, but if a fish is going to die, um, I think there should be some provision uh, that if a person keeps that fish rather than let it go to waste, that it, I don't know how you, you know, I guess if you got the government out of that business, you'd be better off, just saying. Anyway, so that's the, the basics of a kale hook. Basically, I choose between a kale and a circle this way. If I'm going to be holding on to the rod nonstop and I'm going to be working the bait and I'm going to be setting the hook a little bit, I'll use a kale. If I'm going to set the rod in a rod holder and have two or three rods out and be kicking back drinking a beer, listening to the radio, fishing for catfish with lines out, uh, I'm probably going to go with a circle hook because the fish is more likely to hook itself and, and stay on for me. Uh, so circle hooks, if I'm casting baits in a bay or an estuary, like for snooks or something like that, uh, where I have to get fish out of an area where they're tending to like go up into mangroves and get tangled up, I like circle hooks for that because all you do is reel. So you reel, if you can get two or three feet, that fish is not only hooked, but he's out of that tangle, and then you can go to playing him a little bit more conventionally. All right. Um, the last are treble hooks. Treble hooks to me are specialized. A lot of lures have treble hooks on them. There's a good reason for that. Uh, I pretty much use treble hooks when I'm using something called punch or dip bait for catfish, and that's about it. Um, I've, I've never really used treble hooks for much of anything else. And I use them more for the, uh, the treble hook has three hooks on one. So you got an eye and three hooks. I don't really think you get a better hookup with the fish in general because it's, you know, you might get two into them or something like that, but if the fish is picking up the hook versus hitting a lure and it goes to pick up the bait and there's a treble hook there, the fish is more likely to feel that treble hook in that circumference around it than a straight hook. So I think a lot of times fish tend to, like when they go to pick up something with a treble hook, they'll drop it before you get a hook set. They can get just hooked up on it, but smaller treble hooks too, they're not that great a holding power. Bigger treble hooks generally only work well on lures. That's why you see them on there. So unless I'm doing a dip bait or a punch bait, which we'll talk about in a later episode, I don't generally use treble hooks. Though there's times where it seems like they make sense. Um, next up today, I want to talk about weights, split shots, things like that. How, the weight. Now, here's my rule for weight. Use the lowest amount of weight you can for the situation. So that means you might need weight to get some distance to your cast. You might need weight because of current or wind to keep line down. right? Or drift fishing to keep the line down. But... If you think about it this way, let's say you're fishing with a worm, just an earthworm. An earthworm that falls in the water drifts and slowly sinks to the bottom. It doesn't go down to the bottom. So you get the, the most realistic action with that. If you're fishing with a live fish, like a, a shad or a, a, a shiner or a minnow, they swim through the water. They don't sink to the bottom and then fight a line. So... 
within reason, the less weight you can use, the better. But there's places where you have to use weight, sometimes just for casting and sometimes to deal with current, and generally more current than casting. So, an instance would be surf fishing. When I'm at the beach, I'm generally using about a one-ounce casting sinker or drop sinker to hold the line down in the moving surf. If the surf's calm, I'll go to a half-ounce, quarter-ounce. I'll use as little as possible. That way I can feel the fish more. The fish feels less resistance from the weight and is less likely to drop the hook and feel like, what's up here? Uh, and more natural presentation. Of the sinkers, here's what I like best. In most freshwater situations, I like to use split shots when I'm bait fishing. A split shot looks like a BB. You crimp it on the line. The reason I like them is most of them have we refer to as ears on the backside. That means they're removable. So I can crimp it on, crimp it off. If I want to move it, let's say I have the, the, the weight a foot behind the bait and I want to go to two feet, I can take it off, put it right back on. Right? It has a lot of flexibility that way. They can get snagged. I see people take a split shot, put it on their line, crimp it down with pliers. Okay, a couple things here. Number one, if you want to get it off now, it's harder. Number two, you've just smashed the line in between the lead, and you've probably weakened the line. Okay. Uh, number three, now it's like a lot harder for it to slide up and down. If you get snagged, a lot of times if you pull line through the split shot, as the bait comes up against it, it'll bump it loose and you can get out of a snag. And now you can't do that. So I like to do split shots with just finger pressure, just enough. And maybe if you've got a really big one or one that's not crimping right, you get your needle nose or your, your leatherman out and you give it just a little tiny bit, just enough so it, you can still move it if you wanted to up and down the line, but it stays put. So I like split shots for, and you also, when you want very, very light weights, very, very small weights, some of the size of a shotgun pellet, you, know, you can get little tiny split shots, just enough weight to get that bait where you need to or to control it in very slow-moving water up to larger sizes. As you get into using a heavier weight, I like casting sinkers. These are the ones that look like little sandbags, or a lot of surf ones look like a little triangle, and they have an eye in them, and then there's the ones that are more like a disc. In the surf, I like to use the disc ones unless it's really rough and then I go to a triangle because it'll hold a little bit better. I've never been big on the ones that look like, um, I don't know, like, like, uh, like, what are those things that people lift? You know, like, like, a, like a big sandbag kind of shape thing. Um, the ones with the little swivel in them that are kind of sandbag shape, I like those too. Those are generally for fishing when you want to hold the line tight. So, that, you know, that your, your bottom rigs for catfishing and things like that, weight that's heavy enough that I can throw the line out and I can either maintain in my hands constant tension without it constantly moving on me, or I can set it in a rod holder of some sort and keep a tight line so I can watch for a bite or wait for a fish to hook itself. That's generally what I'm using those heavier sinkers for. There's a lot of other stuff. There's slip sinkers. Slip sinkers or an egg sinker, that's a sinker where you look at it, there's a hole through it. You can use your casting sinkers this way too. The way you would use those is what you want now is you want to be able to hold the line tight, but when the fish takes the line, you don't want them to feel the weight. So you put a swivel or a snap swivel in your line, and you put the weight above the swivel. Now when you go to cast, the weight is up against the swivel. It will carry your line out. When you reel in and set your line, you're putting tension against it, so it'll hold the line down, but when the fish takes the bait, 
the line slides through the sinker and there's no resistance. So if you're free lining that way or you've got your drag set really loose on a bait caster, which is another advantage, it's easier to set your drag to where when a fish takes it, it'll just start spooling off. You can clip it over and, and, and set the hook. Or if you, like a lot of times with spin fishing, what I'll do if I'm just sitting out and just letting the rods do the work, I'll set my rods out, put my rod in a rod holder. I'll take the bail on a spin fishing reel and I'll open it. I'll take the line and I'll put it to the ground and I'll put a rock on it. Okay? Or another way to do it is you put a rubber band around the handle. You, put, you want it to do it so that the line stays tight and so the line doesn't go free off in the wind off of the spool. So it's like you're holding it, only it's a rubber band. When a fish takes it, it either pulls it out from under the rock or out from under the rubber band, and now the line just goes, and it can just run with the line. Well, it doesn't feel that weight. So when you see that line moving, you reach down, pick the rod up, clip the bail over, bam, hook the fish. And that way that fish is just taking it and running. That type of fishing, folks, is for when you're putting fish in the cooler, in the freezer, and on the campfire. Because a lot of times those fish are going to swallow the bait, and they're going to be very difficult to unhook without hurting them. So when you're doing things like that, but that's where a slip sinker works. If you want a big, heavy sinker that can be taken on and off at you know random without having to re-rig everything, the rubber core sinkers are great. These are long, kind of oval-shaped ones, and they have a piece of rubber in them, and they just, you just slide the line behind the rubber, and you can cast it, and all of a sudden the conditions have changed or whatever, and you want the weight off, you pull it in, you can take it off, and generally these are easier to get in large sizes than split shots, and they tend, in my experience, to snag less. Uh, so those are basics on your weights. Nets and gaffs. Um, gaffs are for when you are in kind of specialized situations with larger fish that won't fit in a net. And I think if you're using a gaff, you probably know what you're doing or you should. You should be talking to somebody else. It's a big hook that you can put through the fish's mouth or back or head or eyeballs and yank the fish up. And it's, with some very rare exceptions, if a fish has been gaffed, it's, it's, it's done. It's not going back in the water. There are gaff usages with largemouth fish where basically you get the fish in the mouth with the gaff. It's just like a big fish hook, and that fish can be safely released. Anywhere else you've killed the fish or you've injured it to a point where you should be killing the fish. Nets. Nets are a thing that I see used improperly a lot of times. I'm not going to talk about what type of net to get or whatever. Just you want the net to be big enough for the fish and appropriate to the situation. So if you're going to be wade fishing in a river, you don't want a net with a six-foot handle because it's not going to hang from your belt and you're not going to be able to get your hand. You're not going to be able to deal with it in a situation like that. Okay? If you're going to be fishing from a boat where when you're standing in the bow and you're looking down at the water, it's about three or four feet to the water where if you have to lay on your stomach and stretch to be able to touch the water with your fingers, and you have that trout net, the little one-foot handle that's designed to hang on your belt, you can't reach down to the fish. So make the net appropriate to the situation. But here's the big issue, and I see it both when people are netting a fish for themselves or having someone net a fish for them. You do not bring the net to the fish. You bring the fish to the net. A fish is freaked out when it's caught. okay? And a fish that you think is done sees something, feels something, and all of a sudden freaks out. And more fish are lost with the last six feet of line than probably any other place, especially in freshwater and smaller fish. We're not talking about a giant fish that just break off. And I've seen it where you know you get a fish close to shore and it sees the shoreline and freaks out off because the drag was too tight or whatever. With a net, 
you put have the person with the net or you yourself, if you're doing it yourself, you put the net in the water and you use the tip of the rod and you guide the fish into the net head first and then you lift the net. If you do that, you'll have a much higher percentage of uh, netted fish. Uh, some people think that if you net a fish, it makes it really bad for catch and release. I disagree in most instances. Trout tend to get a little bit messed up by nets. It messes with their slime and all. So if you're stream fishing for trout, you want to release them. There's actually the smaller nets, like I'm talking about for trout, they have certain materials that are less disruptive to their slime and their small scales, and you can use that. But most fish, you can net a fish, and as long as you remove the hook and get it back into the water and work with it a little bit and let it on its way, it'll be good to go. Uh, on catch and release, your bigger fish that fight really hard, move them through the water a little bit, get them kind of reconditioned before you let them go. Um, and by God, if you let a fish go, especially if it's legal and it kind of goes up on its side and it, it doesn't look like it's going to make it, take the damn thing home and eat it. Um, even if you're mostly a catch and release fisherman, if you've killed the fish, put it to proper use. Um, but those are your nets and gaps. Bait containers, stringers, coolers, etc. Uh, I think that it's really important that you make sure you have a good way to keep your bait. Uh, we'll talk about this more when I talk about surf fishing in a future episode, but People get bit by sharks every year fishing. And generally, this is the way the guy fishing in the surf gets bit by the shark. It's late evening, and the sun is going down, and it's quite beautiful. The surf is still calm enough to fish, but it's a little bit turbid and murky. It's, the visibility is down because it's getting darker, and the visibility is down because the bottom's stirred up a little bit. Bait fish are running everywhere. Fish are killing bait fish, and the guy's all happy, and he's out there with his squid or his shrimp, and he's catching fish. And in his pocket is like a pound of dead shrimp or dead squid, and it's emitting a slick of stink, of dead fish slime stink out of his pocket while he stands in the water waist deep. Or even like knee deep, but like it's dripping off his pocket. You know, Yes, guys put bait in their pockets, Even if it's in a bag, it's still leaking stink. And it's turbid. There's a smell of dead stuff in the water. Fish are slashing other fish. Little bits of blood are around. Dun-dun, 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 dun And Mr. Bull Shark comes cruising along, who has a reputation for being far more of a man-eater than he really wants to be. And he says, hmm, that smells good. And he goes cruising along. And he can't see very well because everything's all messed up. And the guy's probably there moving around, stirring the thing up even more. And, ah, something's over here. And he gets over that highly attuned sense of smell, says, there's something in the water and it's dead already. Yum. And that lateral line where a fish can actually determine that there's vibrations and sound, hears this guy moving around and casting and jerking around. And he comes up and he says, I think that's it. So he's a shark. He doesn't have fingers. So he goes, let me see what that is. And he bites it. When he bites it, blood comes down. He goes, jackpot. He starts tearing into it. And next thing you know, you got a guy missing a leg or part of it. So if you're fishing in water where sharks are and you're using live bait, you need some sort of a container that doesn't leach the stink of the bait into the water, which will also keep your bait fresher, by the way. A small floating sealable cooler with ice in it would be ideal. Just saying. Um, stringers and things like that. If you're sitting in the water surf fishing where there's sharks with a stringer of fish tied to your belt, you're chumming the water you're in. Right? So th these are things to think about. I'll go a little bit deeper than that. But 
that's part of the whole reason I have bait containers here. Stringers are fine. They're a great way to keep fish fresh if you keep them alive. The big thing with your stringers, if you have a stringer of fish, try to find a place where there's shade so the water's cool because the fish is stressed on the stringer. And the reason you use the stringer is because the fish is never fresher than when it's still alive. If you have fish on a stringer that die, you need to get them out of the water and on ice. My personal opinion is this. Either a stringer or a live well are good. Nothing beats a great big cooler full of ice. The fish, his gills are still going. He's still flipping around, and he's onto the ice. And he's chilled and he dies of, of, of hypothermia, and that meat is never going to be as fresh if you do that any, any other way, um, including if you're going to be cleaning your fish right away, filleting or gutting or however you're going to clean your fish. I think that it makes sense to either put them straight on ice and then clean them cold, that works, or clean them alive. And as soon as that fish is prepared, it goes on ice. And if you do that, a lot of fish that have a reputation for not being so good quality will be better quality. There's two things that destroy fish. Cooking and not caring for it properly prior to cooking. Those are the two things that ruin it. People say, well, this fish is really mushy. Okay, well, you cooked it too long. Okay. Or you caught the fish, you threw it on a dock, sat there, got stiff, you cleaned it, you put it in a cooler with a couple jugs, milk jugs of ice in it, where it wasn't really cold, it sat around, it got wet, it was soaked in water, and it got mushy. And you overcooked it. If you keep fish cold... And once you cut it, you want to people that freeze fish in water. I don't understand. You want to keep it dry. Dry is the way to go. Keep your fish. When I clean a fish, I usually blot it with some paper towel or whatever, and take some of the moisture off of it. And I, if I'm going to freeze it, I like to vacuum seal it. Uh, but at minimum, in a Ziploc bag, squeeze most of the air out and straight into the freezer. If you're going to cook it in the next day or two, good cold refrigerator. Don't freeze it. Fresh fish is better than frozen fish. Um, but on your on your keeping and your coolers and things like that, that's the way to think. So then you adapt the use of your cooler and your containers and your stringers and stuff based on that. On uh, floats or bobbers, that's again the one that I see just ridiculous. I see fathers out with their kids all the time, and they have a bobber the size of a baseball. And they're fishing with a little piece of a worm with a giant hook that the fish can't even get in his mouth, and they're fishing in like four feet of water, and blue, and all you see is the bobber just blink, 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 blink. The fish can't pull that damn thing under. And it can't get, it just, it, and a fish that, that does feel that much resistance, unless they get hooked as they pull against the resistance, is like, yo, something's wrong. Right? Fish are pretty alert creatures. If you're a fish, somebody wants to eat you. Think about that. If you're a fish, you know somebody wants to eat you. There's almost always a bigger fish. A great big largemouth bass. Hey, there's there's alligators, and if you're not where alligators, there's alligator gars. There's big birds, and even if you're a big fish now, you were a little fish at one time, and everybody wanted to eat you. That psychology is in a fish head. Something wants to eat me. Something wants to get me. Something wants me as a meal. I know this because I want to eat other fish. Number one things fish eat are other fish. Minnows are eaten by trout, and trout are eaten by muscalines, right? So if you're a fish, you're convinced other fish want to eat you because they do, or a bird wants to eat you, or an otter, or a person, right? They don't really understand people very well, but they know that anything big might eat them. 
So whenever something's not quite right, that little fish sense goes off and says, hey, I might get, I might get eaten here. So when you have the great big bobber on, not only is it highly visible when it's like, you know, you see a guy fishing a, a foot underneath a bobber the size of a softball, um, it also just creates that resistance. But bobbers, floats, whatever you want to call them, are useful. Um, there's quite a few different kinds, but the ones that are most common are round. I like round the least. The reason I like round the least has the greatest resistance to being pulled under and is the least sensitive to what's going on underneath because it's round. It's not very water dynamic, I guess would be the right word. I was going to say aerodynamic, but it doesn't move through the water very well. Little ones, yeah, they can work. A bobber or a float, however you want to call it, I believe, like most things, use the smallest one that will work for your situation. If you throw out a bobber and between your weight and your bait, the bobber sinks, it's not enough. If it's floating super high and the fish can't pull it under, it's too big. You want a bobber that just floats. Just floats. So that when that fish pulls it down, the, between the weight and the bait, it's almost ready to go under anyway. You'll see every little hit that way. Um, I like stick bobbers. Long bobbers, because they're less resistant, they'll also a lot of times stand up if a fish touches them. And I like to actually fish a stick bobber to where it's like halfway standing up. That means it's at its ultimate sensitivity point. It takes almost nothing for that fish to touch it. Sometimes the fish just touches it, you're kind of you know nibbling, and you want to let them nibble. Sometimes when you're fishing for fish, especially channel catfish for instance, as soon as they take that bait, they've got it in their mouth, and they'll kind of suck it. And I'll get a little nibble, and it's gone. And then you're wondering, where's my next bite? You finally realize there's no bait left. Because you basically sucked it off the hook. So in, when you've got cats acting that way, and sometimes they're, they're voracious. They just take it, and they go, and they're easy. And other days, they're doing that little pick-up and drop thing. Somehow, between picking up and dropping, they've got your bait. You get that twinge, you set the hook. And I like stick bobbers for that. There's also something called a slip bobber. A slip bobber works like a slip weight in reverse. So with a slip bobber, I get a little piece of thread with a little tube on it, and I put my line through that tube. Okay, And then I put my bobber on, and then I put my rigging on. It can be more complex. Usually there's a swivel or something below that so that the bobber doesn't go all the way down to the hook unless there's a weight to stop it. And when I cast... The, bo the, the, the line pulls through the bobber until it hits that little thread stop that I, that I pull the tube out of, and I tighten it up onto my line. Okay, And when I tighten it up onto my line, it'll stop the bobber. It's called a bobber stop. Why would I want to do this? Let's say I want to fish nine feet deep. And I'm not going to be sitting in a boat, so I can't sit there and just drop the line down nine feet and stop it and hold it. I need to cast out and be nine feet deep. Imagine trying to cast with nine feet of line hanging off the end of your rod. So when you're going to cast, your bait is laying on the ground. You're trying to cast the weight of the bobber, and it's trying to pull the I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. With a slip bobber, you can cast, you know, one and a half, two feet of line off the end of your rod, which is where you should be, And that little slip stop, that little piece of thread that's tied around your fishing line, can be all the way up on your fishing reel. And when you cast out, once the, once the line hits, basically, again, the line pulls through the bobber all the way until it hits the stop, and then the bobber is working. Okay? 
for me, bobbers have a few functions and only a few functions. And if they're not one of them going on, I'm not going to use it. Number one is suspending bait at a specific depth. I don't want to be on the bottom. I don't want to be on the top. I want to be somewhere in the middle. Fish are holding at a certain depth. That bobber's perfect for that. And again, smallest bobber for the situation. That's number one. Number two, I want to drift a bait, and the current won't do it without the bobber. Even with no weight on, the bait ends up on the ground, I can't drift to where I want to drift to. So in a stream or something like that, I've got a little pool, a little eddy, and I can't cast back into there, and I want to drift through it, bobbers are great for that. Um, I want to be lazy, and I don't want to fish on the bottom. So I want to be able to watch what's going on. Bobbers bring a lot of pain in the assness with them. If it's windy and you've got a bobber out there, it's nice that your bobber drifts, but if you have multiple rods out, you always end up with them on top of each other, twisting lines stuck together, things like that. Where if you're tight-lined on the bottom, the damn thing stays where you put it. So it's six and one half dozen the other. Is it situational? The other one, and I'll talk about this when I do the show on fishing and bays and, 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 and what have you, and estuaries and, and surf fishing, is a popping cork. A popping cork can be a slip bobber, or it might be more of a fixed bobber, but it's a pretty large float. They make different styles. Some are just like an orb, kind of like an egg shape, and some of them are more like a, um, like a cylinder with a big divot in them. And you use these mostly for redfish and sea trout with either a, a lure that looks like a shrimp or a live shrimp behind them. And the way these work is you cast them out, and you give them a little jerk, and a little bit of a reel, and a little jerk. And when you jerk it, the bobber goes bloop, bloop. And the bait behind it kind of comes up to the surface and drops back down. Up to the surface and drops back down. And you're moving it through the water with, you know, my usual cadence when I'm using one of these is kind of bloop, bloop. And each time you're bringing the line in about a foot. And it's a gentle jerk. You don't jerk the snot out of it. Why would you do this? Get this big bobber up there making it. This is a noise. Trout and redfish are school feeders, and they're, all fish are competitive feeders. If another fish is getting something, they want it. Fifteen times that bait drifts in front of that fish, he's not interested in it. Another fish comes in, checks it out, he sucks it down. They're greedy. When you do that bloop, what it looks like, what it sounds like, what the fish associates it with is other fish feeding in a school, so topwater feeding. And it comes in to see what it is, and then it sees this bait just dropping down. One, it's a bait, it's available, now it's heat up, it eats it. The other thing, though, is that a lot of times in school feeding, baits don't get eaten, they get injured. So fish slash, and they, there's a big school of shrimp, so fish comes in and he gets two or three shrimp, but he just wings one. And then that injured one is kind of like just sinking slowly toward the ground. This happens with shad, with white bass, and things like that as well. When that fish sees that, that one, it's like easy pickings. Right? It's like the vulture coming in for the carcass and, oh, you're hurt. That's nice. Bam. So that's another use for bobbers. There's also a bobber called a fly bubble. A fly bubble is a little bitty plastic bubble that's clear. And it allows you in situations where you'd be better off with that fancy fly rod and you don't have one or know how to use one to be able to fish more like a fly fisherman. It's very light. It has an eye on both sides. So you tie to it and you tie a leader to the other end and you put a bait or a lure or a fly out at the end of it. And then you can cast it with a spinning rod and fish it like a fly rod. I've had situations on streams, you're out fishing, trout all of a sudden are rising everywhere. They're hitting mayflies. You have 
salmon eggs, you have worms, you have spinners, you have lures, you have all kinds of stuff. But when some fish get on a, a, a feeding frenzy on a certain thing, like during a mayfly hatch, or I've seen them on grasshoppers where they won't, I don't know, Just it's just like that's what I want now. I don't want anything else. Think about it this way. Let's say whatever your favorite thing is. Let's say it's pizza. Let's say you like Italian sausage, pepperoni, mushroom, and jalapeno pizza with black olives. That's your thing. You love it. I know you might not like that. Just replace that with whatever you do love. Let's say you wake up and your significant other says to you that morning, you know what, when we get off work today, let's go get pizza the way you like it with a cold beer. And you go, man, even at 6 o'clock in the morning, that sounds good. You go to work all day long and you're thinking, man, pizza and beer. And it's Friday, you know, and you're thinking about that first cold beer and that piece of pizza. Ah, yeah. And you get home and you're getting ready to go out and your significant other comes home and goes, you know, I was thinking about it and... I, I'd kind of prefer to go to a steak place now. No. Uh-uh. No, no. I've locked on to the pizza at that point. Fish get like that with certain feeding frenzies where I want mayflies. So now you've got a little kit with some flies in it in your tackle, but you don't have a fly rod. Well, a fly is just basically feathers or fur tied onto a small hook. This does not cast well. And if you put a weight on it, it just sinks. It's supposed to float or very slowly sink. So by putting that fly bubble on, now I can cast that light weight lure or bait in ways I normally couldn't, and I can fish it where it'll float or what have you. There's ways to do this other than with an artificial lure like a fly. Many folks are familiar with a thing called a mealworm. If you're not, it looks like a cross between a bug and a maggot. Uh, they grow about an inch and a half long, segmented body, little legs in the front. They turn into a beetle. Uh, they're great reptile food. Uh, they're great food for your poultry, like chickens and what have you. And they're good bait, especially for things like trout. They're a little small worm. Now, I've had situations where the trout are rising and they're hitting on the surface. They're not interested in anything below the surface. They're eating bugs. Don't take any bug. They want a bug. You've got mealworms in a bait container. You know, hypodermic needle, okay, hypodermic needle, like you would inject yourself with insulin or heroin, whatever you would use your hypodermic needle for. I suggest you don't use it for insulin unless you're diabetic, and I suggest no one use heroin, but that's what I'm talking about, a needle like a doctor gives you a shot with. So you have a needle, and you have your worm. You take your little worm, and you put a little bitty hook in him, in his tail, and you hide the, the thing, and you take your needle, and you pump a little bit of air in his butt, and now he floats. And you try to cast him, and he goes like two and a half feet and falls in the water in front of you and sits there and floats around and goes, why did you do this to me? Now I have no purpose in my life. So you put a weight on him, and you cast him out, and now he sinks. You want him up on the surface. You put a big old honking bobber on there, and now you've got this highly visible thing that doesn't really go through the water well, and... Uh, you you kind of lose sensation of the bait itself at the other end of it. So you put your little fly bubble on. Now you've got this practically invisible little bit of weight and float, this floating worm, and you can put him wherever you want him, and you can move him, and you can twitch him around, you can get their attention, and all of a sudden you're catching fish. I've also done that with grasshoppers. You're out fishing, fish are hitting stuff on the surface, there's grasshoppers around, you take a few minutes to go catch a few grasshoppers, fly bubble, grasshopper, grasshoppers float pretty good on their own. If you have big grasshoppers, you can cast them, but little grasshoppers, which are generally better bait, don't work as good. 
without that fly bubble. The fly bubble, they can go anywhere you want. Crickets, great bait for a lot of fish, but they sink. I've never aired up a cricket. <laughs> It's probably cruel, but I would imagine with a fly bubble and only a couple inches back from the fly bubble, crickets could be twitched to the surface and, and done quite well, but I've never tried it. So that's why we'd use a fly bubble. Some other stuff you want to think about having. Like a pair of clippers, like fingernail clippers, they're invaluable. You can use a knife, yeah, but when you're trying to get line off, if it's tied up on the eye of a hook or something like that, fingernail clippers just are incredibly advantageous. Um, either a pair of needle nose pliers or a Leatherman that has a, a, a plier type with a needle nose style. Uh, I've seen a lot of different hook extractors, plastic ones that jam the hook down and all. The ones that look like they have like a plier thing and then they're long and they have a handle that goes 90 degrees, those work pretty well. But 99% of the time, a pair of pliers will get the job done. And the pliers are multifunctional. You can use them to fix a reel. You can use them to tighten things up. You can use them to give a little crimp, not a heavy crimp, remember, to your split shot weights. You can use them to do minor repairs on lures. You can use them to put bends into hooks if you need to do to for certain reasons. They're just very, very functional, and they get hooks out. Um, I also think it's a good idea to have some basic first aid stuff everywhere, but especially fishing. Here's your main injuries fishing. Fish fins of one sort or another, stabbing you, gill plates, fish teeth, uh, fish spines, etc. Randomly hurting yourself on things like uh, splinters on docks and things like that. Uh, stepping on something sharp when you're wade fishing barefoot or something like that. Cutting yourself. Um, hooking yourself, of course. Uh, I've never hooked myself past a barb which is where the hook is in you, past the barb, where you can't just pull it out because the barb is now in. Um, there's a bunch of different theories on how to get it out. <laughs> the old school theory is you just push it the rest of the way through, cut the barb off, and take it out. I've seen articles, though I've never seen it done, where, and you probably need someone to do this for you if you're hooked in the hand, you push down on the eye of the hook, you put a piece of line around the hook, as you push down the eye, you pull back with the line, and it'll come out. Uh, I hope I never have to find out, but yes, you can hook yourself. Um, really be careful with those circle hooks and kale hooks. Uh, they they really get in you, and really be careful with the treble hooks on your on your lures, especially. Um, use use care with that. Use care when you're removing hooks from fish. You've got a lot of tension on the line, which you shouldn't, and the hook comes out and right up and in your hand. So be careful with that. Um, but those are your big ones, and the biggest thing I see people get hurt with is the fish. Again, either the fish's teeth, because you're handling it improperly. Some fish have very sharp gill plates, so the backside of the gills. But the number one is spines, and it's not just catfish that will spine you. Um, so the other way is with line, line cuts. Um, I've got one in my thumb right now that's still healing. Line cuts, that, that monofilament is strong stuff, and it's fine. And if you pull your hand across, it'll cut right into your fingers and in your hands. And what usually happens is a person thinks they have their drag loose enough to pull some line out without un disengaging the, the real bail or lock. And when they go to pull it, you pull it across your fingers, and it cuts into your hand. Uh, that's not something you usually need a first aid kit for, but it is, hurt, it is painful. So I did think I would point it out. The way this often happens is you have everything set right. If you're surf fishing in salt water, and this is a good reason to make sure you clean your reels every day if you're anywhere near salt water, is the salt gets in there and binds the reel up. And even though you had it set, it doesn't disengage right. And you end up cutting yourself with, with that. But fish spines are number one. I've got 
if you ever meet me and you, you want to see this, I've got like five spots on my hands from years and years of fishing for ocean and estuaries and bays and brackish water and catching catfish and releasing them and trying not to hurt them. Several spots where I've been spined by either gaff top sail or hardhead catfish. These are ocean swimming catfish that have a little bit of a venom or, or slime that has a venom-like quality. And when they spine you, they'll actually sometimes leave what looks like a mole. And I've got two that are really prominent, one in the palm of my left hand and one in the small finger of my right hand. It hurts. It hurts. It doesn't hurt like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. But it hurts. And it hurts different than being spined by basically anything else. I've been, I'm sure if you get hit by a lionfish or something, a poisonous stonefish or whatever, you got problems. But when it comes to day-to-day -day fishing that you fish for, I, there's something in the slime that's on those fish that's actually painful that hurts for several days. So use care with them. But any fish can spine you. I put hand towels and gloves on this list as well. When we fish for white bass, these are not a very rambunctious little fish, but they do have a pretty good dorsal fin with some pretty good spines in it. There are fish you catch a lot of, and sometimes you get into a high volume. And when I talk about lake fishing, I'll talk about uh, a, 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 a pattern called hell pet fishing. And you get into a situation, maybe you got a guy driving a boat, two guys trolling, and one guy just taking fish off. And you rotate, and I've, I've had situations where the limit on those is 25 fish, and in like an hour and a half, we put 100 fish in the boat, and we're going home with that, that pattern. Well, the guy's taking the fish off. is taking off two fish at a time, from, so four fish a pass. And it's easy to make mistakes. And usually when I was doing that with my son and his friends, I just wear an old leather glove, and I grab that fish with that leather glove, and that way you don't have to worry about it, and you can move faster. Because basically the guy with the boat, after completing the pass, is turning around, and he goes back into where you're trolling, your two guys are dropping the lines back in and trolling again. So there are times where gloves make sense of certain types of fish in certain situations, or cleaning fish, a good glove, like the, the gloves they make that are, one, they're hard to cut through, but two, they have this come like a chain mail, type style to them. Some are actually chain mail, like a knight's chain mail. Some have that pattern and more like a nylon. But either way, when you grab a slimy fish with your non-knife hand, they hold that fish very well. So not only will you not likely to cut yourself, but they also make it easier to control a slimy fish when you're trying to fillet it, especially if it's still alive and he's kind of opposed to the fact that you're about to fillet him. So those are the basic gear. I want to finish up today with just some basic thoughts that Always apply, even though in the future I'm going to go into more specific instances. Number one, fish always relate to structure and edges. If there's no structure and no edge, there's probably no fish, but some edges move. So you have open water. All of a sudden there's fish there. There's no edge. There's no structure. Yeah, there is. Probably what's happened is a cloud of plankton have come through, driven by wind and current. The plankton have attracted small fish. The small fish have attracted bait fish. The bait fish are now the edge that the predator fish are attacking. So you're always looking for an edge, whether it's a hump or a point or a pier or a dock or a gut, which, again, is like a valley in the surf where you've got a sandbar up and then a gut down. There's always something or a fish isn't going to hang out there. If you go to a lake and you watch guys fishing, you don't generally see boats sitting in the center of the lake with a line dropped over the side. They're trolling, they're moving around, they're looking for structure. And again, if it's not physical structure, it's environmental structure. Sometimes when you're fishing deep sea fishing, you come along some crap floating in the ocean. Just like somebody threw something off of a, of a, of a boat 
Uh, one time when I was fishing off the coast of Panama, we came across a floating palm tree that had been dislodged by a storm or something, floating out at open sea. There were fish following underneath that structure. There were uh, wahoo and other bait fish underneath that structure that the wahoo were feeding on. So that's an example of an environmental structure. But you're always looking for structure, humps, ridges, uh, points, rocky structures, or situational environmental structures. So always look for structures. Number two, and I've said it several times, but I'll say it again, use the lightest gear that's suitable. Now, if you go out with ultralight line and you're fishing for 20-pound red snappers, if you manage to get the bait where you need to to catch one, you're probably not going to land any. It's a lot of fun to fish with really light gear for larger than generally speaking fish. It's kind of specialized, and you learn a lot. You become very, very skilled at playing fish when you go that ultra-light to heavier fish situation. And understand, that's situational. An ultra-light rod that you would generally use for trout that are you know, up to a pound, and you, you're catching a six-pound carp on that, That's you've gone way heavier than the rod's intended, but not beyond its capabilities, even with, say, four-pound line. But... If you were to go ahead and take something that would be suited to that six-pound carp and end up with like a 40-pound blue cat on it, you've kind of put yourself in the same situation. I'm not talking about that. It's fun. It's sporting. It's great. I love to do it. I'm generally fishing one level below what would be optimum. But optimum is the smallest, lightest gear that's sufficient to do the job well. This gives you the most natural presentation, the most control, the greatest sensitivity, the greatest feel. That's not just with rod and reel and line. That's with weight. That's with hook. That's with float. That's with uh, you know lure size. Everything in moderation to size with some understandings. So I've been out, and you're, you're fishing for white bass, and we're jigging with slab. You use a half-ounce slab, which is like a, a lure that just basically looks like a, a spoon solid with shiny spoon with a hook hanging off of it and it's heavy so you drop it down you jig it up and down and we're catching fish but they're small really small smaller than you want to catch go to a larger lure you start catching larger fish sometimes sometimes it goes the other way but in general try to use the lightest gear that's suitable for what you're doing and i hope it's clear what i mean by suitable so i'm not saying for instance to go out and fish for 40 pound blue cats with four pound line unless you want to do it for sport I'm saying size the tackle to the fish. Don't go out with a big giant surf rod to fish for bass in a lake. It's inappropriate and it won't work well. Um, next, if you're getting no action, you're not getting any bites or anything like that, move, change your bait, find a different technique, do something different. Don't just sit there and wait. You can, and there's times, like I said, when I'm being lazy and you're just camping and the rods are just in. You, I don't really care, whatever. Get a body, do I don't. But in general, if you want to catch fish and you're not getting any action at all, the fish aren't there. So you have two choices. One, you know it's a good spot, so you're going to just wait till the fish move into the area. Or two, you're going to change your tactics. If you are interested in catching fish, though, change your tactics. Change your bait. I've seen little things like you're out surf fishing, you get some bites, all of a sudden you stop getting bites, you use the shrimp, Drill it in, take that bait off, put a fresh bait on, you start getting hits right away. Sometimes just, the bait just needs to be freshened up. Um, you're getting no bites, you're fishing with a half ounce weight, um, 
you lighten the weight up so you get a slower drop of your bait, you start getting hits on the way down. You learn these things as you go. But if, if, if fish are not biting, change what you're doing. Don't think that the way that you catch fish is by throwing a line in the water and waiting 10 hours. If you wait 10 hours to catch a fish, a fish just happened by your bait. Take a proactive approach. Um, Talk to others, read fishing reports, get on forums, things like that. If you're in Texas, Texas Fishing Forum is my favorite forum here. I haven't been on there much lately, but uh, but I used to post there an awful lot, and I learned a lot from guys there. But, I mean, you get the most information. Talk to guys at tackle shops, bait stores. Talk to guys on piers. You meet people. Fishermen a lot of times have a secret spot or a secret area or a secret technique. But, in general, the general information is freely shared, such as, Uh, the channel cats are now spawning and they're in the riprap on the dam. The riprap is all the rocks and stuff like that. They're in about two feet of water. People are catching them on punch paint. That type of information is generally freely shared. Uh, where the guy's uh, brush pile that he built himself back in the cove that he always catches crappie on, probably not going to tell you where that is. Okay, but the general information. So talk to people, talk about the techniques they're using, what they're using. If they say they're rigged up a certain way, ask them to show it to you. Most fishermen... If they're going to be assholes, you know right away, and you know they're not going to talk to you. Most guys, though, that we like to share. Um, we'll be out on the beach. We'll show each other rods, reels, tactics, talk about other places we've gone. You know, Ask them if you're going to hire a guide. Have you ever hired a guide? Who's the best guide here? That type of thing. Um, if you're going to fish often, especially in one place or for one species, one region, take notes. If, if you look at your notes, and last year, around mid-May, fish moved into a certain pattern. Most likely, they're going to move into that pattern around mid-May this year, especially on the same lake. Now, if it was five degrees warmer last year, you can check in that area. But if they're not there, right, keep an eye on the water temperature. And as that water temperature or temperature comes up, they're probably going to move into that pattern again. This is why in a lot of fishing tournaments and all, the you know, guys that travel all around the country and all, the locals have the advantage. They know the pattern on the lake. They know where the fish are. They know how the fish are acting. And they've, they've done it for years. So that's a huge advantage, but you won't remember. You'll think, oh, I'll remember that those fish are up in this cove in June next year. No, you won't. You have this whole thing all the life that will get in the way. Um, target species or go for anything based on the situation. And what I mean by that is, The, the whole attitude of I'm fishing for whatever bites predisposes that you're using like a mono crop technique, right? So you're fishing, you're drift fishing shrimp or you're drift fishing shad or something like that. Um, and you're just, whatever comes my way, I'll take. In the surf, I love that. I gave you that laundry list of fish that I caught doing just that in the surf. And I've caught small sharks that way. I've caught rays that way. Um, I've caught just about anything that swims doing that. And I've done it in freshwater too, not to the same degree. But targeting certain fish will increase the ability to catch fish at all. So when we go for white bass, we're looking for humps, we're looking for shad on the depth finder, we're using lures that are specifically targeting that species. It doesn't mean we won't catch anything else, but we'll find when we're targeting a fish, we generally catch that fish consistently. Crappie, we're looking for brush piles or bridge pylons. Catfish, it's depending on the time of the year, where they're hanging out. Are they spawning? Are they in deeper water? Are they suspended? Uh, so targeting a species is often a really good way to make sure you're putting a presentation out there and fishing in an area where fish are. But I don't mind. If it pulls, I'm happy. 
I mean, I'm not one of these guys, like I've had, I've seen guys, you know, you're out fishing and you know, all of a sudden you get a really good fish and it's pulling line and it's, and you got the driving fight and they're reeling it in and all of a sudden it's a big old drum and they're like, oh man, I'm stoked. I don't care. Some fish are going to eat and some fish not so much. In general, if it's big and it fights and puts up a struggle, I'm happy that I caught something. Um, the biggest things I can say though is learn, feel, hook set, and play. All right, so feel is I've got the bait out. What's it feel like when a when a fish actually is messing with my bait versus a current or wind or surf or you know what have you? Or reeling the line slowly in and I'm coming up over bumps and humps and I'm feeling that versus a fish actually biting. Or I'm reeling a lure in or I'm jigging and what is the lure and what is a weed and what is a fish? Developing feel. Feel just takes time. It just takes time. You got to get out and fish a lot. You get to where you can actually in your head see the line based on the feel, and you know what's going on. Um, hook set is knowing precisely when do I engage that hook into that fish. When has that fish got that line enough that I need to, to set it? And play is I've got the fish hooked. How do I let the rod do the work? And I see a lot of people horsing fish in. You're just holding the rod and just... Not moving the, the rod handle, just cranking. And if you've got a little fish and a big rod and big you know, reel and big line and all, there's no danger of that fish breaking the line, no problem. But if that fish is pushed the, the limits of your gear, not even way past them, but just you know, marginally beginning to push them, and you don't play that fish right, you can lose the fish to a broken line. But more likely what you lose the fish to is the fish throwing the hook. Play is learning how to let that rod do the work. Let the rod tire the fish out. You know, holding the rod at about a 45 degree angle. When the fish is really pulling, don't crank, don't pull back. Use your arm, let your arm be a little bit loose and just let that fish pull. Let that fish pull. Okay, now he's taking a break. Now I'm going to take some line in on him. The best way to develop this is find some easy action. Hire a guy that can put you on a lot of fish. Go find a pond full of sunfish. And fish with little pieces of worm and a hook and no weight and cast out 10 feet. And when the lines watch the line and when they pick the fish up, learn. I mean, this is, to me, most of my skill with knowing when to set the hook comes from being eight years old and in fishing in ponds in Florida that I could walk to in the apartment complex next to where I lived. And just catching hundreds of little sunfish and just learning that. If you can get on a bigger fish, you find a pond that's full of, like, carp or something like that and get out there fish with some bread and just... Learn to feel, learn to set hooks, and learn to play the fish. Use a light rod. Get into some heavier fish with a light rod. Challenge yourself a little bit. Learn, okay, he's going to make a run right here. There it is. I knew he was going to make that run because he was he was getting ready for that surge. And those three things will help you. And have fun and don't overdo it. Um, I know when I first started hiring guides, I'd look for guides. I want to do an eight-hour trip. I want to do an eight-hour trip. Man, four hours on the water, especially if the guy knows what he's doing, is a long time. So don't overdo it. Don't get too hot. Use sunscreen. Drink lots of water. If you're going to have a beer or two, fine. You know, do that toward the end. Don't spend the whole day out there drinking. You get sick. You get overheated. It's not good for you to drink too much anyway. Uh, you know, get some get get places where you can stay cool if you're fishing in the cold weather, so you can stay warm. Don't overdo it. Have a lot of fun. Um, that kind of wraps things up today. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I want to know if you want me to continue the series on fishing. As a survival prepper talk about, topic, I think for number one, it's a, it's a skill. All skill sets to me are prepper topics. It's, it's a skill. Fishing is a multidimensional skill. You can learn a hundred different varieties of fishing techniques 
You can spend a lot of money or you can spend a little bit of money. I don't spend a lot of money fishing. I really don't. I have a small set of tackle, hooks, weights, and things like that. The primary things that are expendables for me are bait. Most of the time it's bait that I'm either catching myself or buying really, really cheap. Um, line, I get a good season uh, most of the time out of a spool of line. Um, hooks do wear out. They start to rust, things like that. Weights, unless you lose a weight, it still works. Float, floats and course and stuff like that. Quality rods and reels last a long time. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm thinking about buying a boat again. I used to have a boat just because there's such a great lake so close to me. Um, but if I do, I won't be buying a $50,000 bass boat and driving around with a 300 horsepower motor eating up, you know, $100 worth of gas to catch $5 worth of fish doesn't make any sense. Properly sized equipment, budget consciousness. It's actually fishing becomes a way to put quite a bit of meat in the freezer. Uh, when I grew up in Pennsylvania, I'll bet you between my uncle and my father and myself, we probably put up 200 to 300 pounds of fish a year easy. Easy. Probably more. Uh, when I was fishing heavily as a teenager and really got into channel cats and things like that, I bet I did that alone. So it can be very productive from a sustainability food standpoint as well. Good high quality protein. Check the water quality where you're fishing. Unfortunately, there's some places now where you really shouldn't be eating the fish. I've got two lakes near me. One is called Eagle Mountain Lake. It's a beautiful, clear lake. The fish in it is very high quality. I eat it, I would eat it any day that I, of the week. Uh, just down from it south a little bit is a lake called Lake Worth. And Lake Worth has a PCB advisory. I wouldn't eat a fish out of there if you paid me. So you do want to check into that. A lot of our lakes and streams in the northeast now have problems with mercury contamination. And that's true all the way down in Arkansas. That's from all the coal plants. So in a lot of those situations, the fish itself is not so much dangerous, but you don't want to eat it all the time, so you want to limit your intake. So look for the species and places you can actually put fish up in the larder that makes sense. Those of you that are like in the northwest and all, that can go out and catch salmon and really big trout during the runs and, you know, put up 50, 60, 70 pounds of meat, not just live fish weight, but of meat in a single day. You guys have it awesome, and I'd have a smokehouse if I were you. Anyway, with that, again, the other things that I've thought about covering with this, this was just the basics of gear, um, fishing rivers and streams, specializing in that, the surf and bays and piers, uh, fishing lakes, and then all about boats and hiring guides, and then unconventional methods like jugging, trot lines, and bank lines. I don't want to turn the TSP into the angler hour, but I think fishing something we never have gone really, really in-depth to. It's something that I have an awful lot of knowledge and a lifetime of experience with, and if you guys enjoy it, uh, let me know. And if there's other subjects you'd want me to cover, I don't know, maybe a show on cooking and preparing fish might be a good one. Uh, I'll be happy to do that with you. I will put a link today in today's show notes, uh, for those that haven't seen it yet, of me uh, turning a small uh, pompano into uh, sashimi. Uh, during our recent vacation, uh, if it's saltwater fish and if it's the quality the type of fish that's a good quality for it, uh, I actually prefer sashimi or ceviche uh, to cooking most of those fish because they're delicate and they just come out a lot better. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TV. Sometimes we forget that we are what we eat. I don't know the answer 
Revolution.